0: Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Today, we've got the latest episode in our new series on Britain's greatest prime ministers.
1: Hello, and welcome to our new series profiling some of Britain's most important prime ministers. I'm Matt Elton, Deputy Editor of BBC History magazine. It's 300 years since Robert Walpole became Britain's first prime minister. To mark this seismic moment in the nation's political history, we asked a series of leading historians to each nominate the two leaders that they believe achieved most during their time in number 10. Today, I'm talking to historian and broadcaster Dominic Sandbrook, whose second nomination is William Pitt the Younger, whose two terms in office guided the country through a period of extraordinary turbulence. You've nominated Pitt the Younger as one of your um, greatest British prime ministers. Um, People may or may not have heard of him. Can you briefly sketch out for us who he was?
2: Okay, well, Matt, I'm slightly regretting having picked Pitt the Younger now because some people might say, I wouldn't say this, but some people might say that I know no more about Pitt the Younger than the next. man in the street does. However, let's embark on this nonetheless. So I think there's a terrible tendency with um, choosing prime ministers that you basically either choose people who are very recent or you choose people just that you've generally heard of. And very few prime ministers, actually, if we're honest, we've ever heard of. You know, most people have heard of Gladstone Disraeli, but that's probably it in the 19th century. So I thought it'd be really good to choose somebody a, a bit older and somebody who served in a time of crisis, because I think that's often the key to prime ministerial achievement. It's not about, you know, oh, you built lots of hospitals, well done. I mean, any fool can do that if the economy is doing well. I think the test is how you respond to colossal challenges. And Pitt the Younger, who was prime minister at the end of the 18th century and into the Napoleonic Wars, he is somebody who faced, you know, arguably, one of the two or three greatest crises that Great Britain has faced since it was united at the beginning of the 18th century. So that's the French Revolution and the emergence of Napoleon. And yeah, you know, I mean the one thing that pe- people know about Pitt the Younger is that he was very young. So it, it actually is, it is, is laughable to think that he was Prime Minister at the age of 24. Um, you know, I, I mean, I don't even think people should be allowed to vote at the age of 24, let alone kind of enter politics. Anyway, that's by the by. So Pitt the Younger became. Um, Prime Minister, very young. Britain is a massively sort of booming industrial maritime power. But at the same time, we've just lost our American colonies. We face a big rival in France, which is about to find itself in broadened revolution. The empire is developing, but it's still quite fragile. You don't know that it's going to become this big sort of Victorian Leviathan later on. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of kind of domestic unrest. Industrialization is bringing unrest of its own. The French Revolution is going to bring all kinds of challenges and sort of challenges to order and stuff. So he's got a pretty tough inheritance to deal with and as I say he's 12 years old so that's going to make it um, even harder so he sort of navigated all that and he although he was dead by the time of victory over Napoleon by the time of Waterloo so he doesn't get to see the fruits of his labors he laid the foundations particularly the financial and kind of economic foundations and the alliances without which victory would have been impossible and of course had we lost those wars you know, our subsequent history might have been very different. So Britain might not have been this imperial power, it might have been hamstrung from the beginning. You know, France might have dominated the 19th century rather than Britain. So I think that really mattered, mattered hugely.
1: He's also someone with the unusual distinction of having a father who was also Prime Minister. Do you think that shaped his view on the role? Yeah.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So that's a very unusual situation. So you got a bit the Elder and a bit the Younger, who are both sort of 18th century prime ministers. And um, I think he had this driving sense of, you know, living up to his father's example. So um, William Pitt, the elder, had been not merely a sort of statesman, but he'd been a speaker. He'd been somebody who had, you know, inspired people by the, the, the power of his example. He was somebody who was perceived to have stood up for the country again, kind of against the French and stuff. So there is that sort of example. And obviously, without the family name, he would never have come into politics in the first place. Without the connections and stuff, I mean, it would have been unthinkable for him to have become prime minister so young. I mean, it was basically because he was uh, Pitt the eldest son that he was able to get where he was. But then he wasn't some sort of foppish, you know, wastrel who fritters away his father's political inheritance. He he built on it and created a record in government in the seventeen. 17- really sort of the 1790s, 1800s, that eclipsed anything his father had achieved um, a couple of decades previously.
1: He was also known as Clean Billy, um, which is a lovely nickname for someone. Um, what, what does that tell us about how he was viewed and what he was like, I suppose?
2: So, yes, that's a, a good question because this is a period of enormous corruption in, and, and corruption was a big theme of political life in the second half of the 18th century. And... I mean, one reason I think that Pitt the Younger, who was Prime Minister for a very long time, one reason that he he didn't leave a great mark on the national imagination was actually he was such a, um, a glacial, chilly man you know he has no wife he's married to his work he's the sort of soul of probity i can sort of give you an example of that by they did a film once about william wilberforce who was his mate who obviously involved in the campaign against the slave trade which which pitt sort of puts him up to to some extent and um the person they got to play william pitt the younger was a very young benedict cumberbatch who sort of played him as this very sort of cumberbatchian sort of Sherlock, you know, the sort of Sherlock Holmes, sort of a bit autistic and and very sort of stern and icy and all the rest of it. And that absolutely captures, actually, Pitt's image. And that appealed, that had an appeal in the late 18th century because he wasn't one of these sort of, you know, grotesquely fat Um, corrupt uh, sort of Charles James Fox who was his big rival um, style politicians who basically spent all night playing cards and, and drinking port Pitt did drink a lot of port to be fair as they all did but he was much more clean living and hence the nickname and the cleanliness was part of the appeal I mean that was what people wanted you know Britain had had a pretty sort of rough time with the loss of the American colonies there was a sense generally that the King George III had been surrounding himself by all his cronies and Pitt was somebody, you know, he was he was almost Roman. That was a, a big thing to people in the sort of late eighteenth century, you know, at a time when the American Republic is being founded. This sort of image of Roman virtue and Pitt, almost uniquely among um, British politicians of the late eighteenth century, really incarnated that.
1: Do you think the uh, role of Prime Minister in this period was at all comparable to what it's turned into today?
2: No, they're not. Com- they're not really comparable at all. I think. I suppose one thing that you would say is uh, they they do face similar challenges in the sense of being statesmanship. You know, you have to navigate the sort of shoals of foreign rivalries and crises at home and abroad and all those kinds of things. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when
1: it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
0: That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra.
2: But to be a prime minister in the 18th century, I mean, you basically, you know, you're in London and some country houses and meeting the people is not part of your your remit at all. So the sort of showmanship that you would see from a modern prime minister and the sense of being permanently campaigning, which we have now, I mean, we live in an age of permanent campaign, there was none of that at all. I mean, you became prime minister um, in the 1780s through kind of backroom deals, through faction and through influence at court and things, and 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 the respond the demands of the job were utterly different from today. Now Pitt, Pitt worked very hard, and he worked hard particularly on sorting out the tax system and trying to raise more money and trying to organise Britain into this sort of warfare state that would fight the French. But you could get away with being prime minister and sort of you know going to balls, putting on some stockings. Molesting society women. I mean, that was what a lot of kind of prime ministers spent their time doing. Pitt was part of his kind of clean Billy stuff was that he actually did a lot of work.
1: Um, and on that point, what what are the three the three episodes that you think define his his tenure?
2: Okay, the, I suppose the defining, if I can think of defining episodes. So number one is becoming prime minister at all. So to become prime minister so young, and most people think it'll only be as a stopgap. That George the Third has got him just as a sort of because he can't think of anybody else and because everybody else has fallen out. And to get him at 24, and then at that such a young age, to, to leave such a deep imprint on British politics, rather than to just be a sort of amusing quiz question answer, I think that's a sign of the the steel, if you like, of the man. Um, number two is his reaction to the French Revolution. So at a time when quite a lot of people, and certainly a lot of his rivals, people like Fox, were... Um, getting a bit giddy about the the French Revolution and its sort of exciting possibilities and, you know, hurrah, hurrah, you know, New Dawn and stuff. Pitt was more sanguine. You know, he was suspicious of Jacobinism he was not a fan of the terror he he thought all of this was kind of gonna end in tears and that he was adamant that no hint of it should appear in Britain now again this is one of those answers that I give that have people some people kind of sighing and throwing their podcast listening device through the through the window I, I think you know it was a good thing to be pretty harsh on um, on on Radical dissent in the 1790s. I think it meant that Britain was able to fight the wars again, sort of united and and um, organised. And I think it's a good thing that we didn't have a French Revolution in Britain. So I'm kind of I'm I'm just a generally very reactionary, unpleasant person. So I you know I'm all for that sort of stuff. Can't get enough of it. And then the third thing I think which will go some way hopefully to redeeming him in the eyes of people who've been horrified by the last minute of the podcast is that he was, he, he helped to sort of push through the, the union between Ireland and Great Britain after the, um, there'd been a revolt in Ireland or a rebellion, big huge rebellion at the turn of the 19th century. And so the two parliaments were united And one of Pitt's big things, and he fell out with George III about it, is he said, if you do that, you've kind of got to allow Catholics into Parliament, into the House of Commons. You can't unite with Ireland and then say, but you can't send any Catholics. That's obviously ridiculous and unfair. And um, the king was deeply opposed to it. He said it contravened his coronation oath. So they fell out. And um, effectively, Pitt Pitt had to go. So Pitt resigned and he came back later on. But um, he was right. I mean, we would all say now that that was right, and that was a much more far-sighted way of doing things. And then a more conciliatory policy towards Ireland, and indeed towards Catholics generally, would have reaped greater rewards in the long run. So it was foolish not to listen to him.
1: Is there a particular policy or event that proved their undoing? You've talked a bit about that episode.
2: Um, he didn't really have an undoing. He just died. <laughs> um, and that was basically because he'd been working ridiculously hard, like... It seems everybody who was a public figure in those days, he suffered from terrible gout, partly because he drank colossal amounts of port. So his doctors actually advised him to drink all this port. They thought it was, you know, when they noticed that his health was bad, they said, well, you clearly need to be drinking more. So it's a, what weird that doctors don't think that today. So he drank tons and he died probably from a sort of peptic ulcer in um in 1806. So he wasn't undone by a, a policy so much as by working too hard and, yeah, his his sort of fondness for the bottle, which was very common in those days. But I think mean, the difference between him and a lot of other politicians is that I think he basically worked himself to death.
1: Do you think it's his work ethic that contributed to him being such an effective prime minister?
2: Yeah, I do, actually. I think there's a time... You were talking earlier, you asked the question about whether the premiership had changed, which obviously it has changed colossally. And one change Uh, well, one thing that was very different about the sort of late 18th, early 19th century premiership is you you didn't have to do a lot of work if you didn't want to. So you could kind of coast a little bit and get other people to do the work for you or just assume that things would take care of themselves. But Pitt worked immensely hard. He recognised, I think, that Britain... Facing this total war, this world war against Napoleonic France, it would never win if it carried on in the same slightly amateurish, disorganised way. So, for example, he introduced an income tax, which took an enormous amount of paperwork. You know, you imagine the paperwork it would take now and imagine the paperwork in a pre-computer age. And, and he really got stuck into all that. He got stuck into modernising the customs and excise tach- taxes, clamping down on smuggling and all these sort of things. Um, and I think that you know, he showed what you could achieve with the office of prime minister, that if you wanted to turn it into a vehicle for change and for doing things, you could actually do that rather than just sort of swanning about and, you know, wearing extravagant wigs or whatever else um, people have been doing. This is obviously an immensely nuanced take on 18th century politics that I'm giving you here.
1: Despite the fact we're talking about this era of port and wigs, um, do you think there are lessons here for... The 21st century? (laughs) Don't drink so much port. Um,
2: (laughs) What lessons can you learn from Pitt, the younger? I mean, I suppose if you were taking him as a model, you know, you would say it's not all about... um, And this is true of other successful prime ministers, by the way. You would say, you know, actually sort of sheer competence can often get you a long way, more than you think. So the sort of bluff and bluster side of politics uh, can be a route to the top, as we know, and can actually, you know, win elections and do quite well. If you can't fake it, you don't have to. You can just work incredibly hard and be the kind of boring, chilly, details man or woman. And if you are competent, then you will get your reward. And I think that, that Pitt's career proved that.
1: Is there a question that you would like to ask him, finally?
2: Hmm, that's a good question. That's an interesting one. What would I ask him? I think I'd probably ask him about his relationship with his father because um, I think that's an interesting thing. I It must have weighed so heavily, as it would on any of us, um, that he had had a father who was also prime minister. And I think it would be particularly interesting to ask him towards the end of his life, once he'd had the job for so long, how he felt about his father and his father's example and whether he felt he'd eclipsed his father or whether he felt he was still trying to live up to him.
0: Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow when Shushma Malik will be speaking about the Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius.